0: This is a 2020 Audi R8 Coupe Quattro. It has a V10 engine, 602 horsepower. It can go from zero to 60 in 3.2 seconds. It has diamond stitching on the ceiling and red leather interior. It comes with a carbon experience package. I have no idea what that means. It is by far the most amazing car that I have ever driven and it has absolutely nothing to do with the next few minutes. As we were preparing for this next series, why, how, and what, I thought it would be both interesting and fun to see where the mission and vision of Hope came from. So, I got a friend who goes to Hope to let me borrow his car because my 2008 RAV4 just didn't seem to fit. And I picked up Hope's founding pastor at one of his favorite spots to get some answers. I bought you a little present. Is this your car? (laughs) No, it's not my car.
1: I work at Hope. Well, man, if it's not yours, I'm gonna drive it. Awesome. Do you think it's okay to smoke?
0: Uh, we borrowed that from Audi, and it might run on jet fuel. I think you probably should keep flame away from this car if it uh, all All right, I'll put it out, I'll put it out. But you should definitely try this car. Okay, so tell me the story of, like one, tell me how you grew up, very traditional, and then tell me the story about Bob Jones.
1: Um, uh, Yeah, very traditional, I always kid, Liberty Free Will Baptist Church, there was no liberty or free will, and uh, <laughs> right. didn't go to movies, didn't drink, Didn't wasn't allowed to square dance in the second grade, had to take a note to PE saying I couldn't do that. Is that for real? No, that's, that's true. Oh my goodness. No dancing whatsoever. And, wow. When I got out of high school, my parents basically said, you can join the military or go to Bob Jones. Then I met Laura, and we got married right right before. Um, it was actually going into my last semester. I had to go to the dean of men's office, and I had a friend who worked in the dean of men's office. I said, what's this about? Because that's never good there. And he says, um, that looks like you're gonna get kicked out. <laughs> I said, why? And they said, because Laura works at a restaurant that serves alcohol. I said, she, she's not a student. And they said, it, it doesn't matter. You're senior, you should know better. I guess the verse that really kind of resonated with me is it's not the healthy who need a hospital,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's the sick. Yep. And I thought, man, what if you had a church that people would actually, who had issues, like we all have issues, but they felt comfortable enough just to come and you could provide a safe environment for them to listen and maybe get a different perspective on who God is and the relationship he wants to have. And, that was really the whole thinking behind having a church where people really did feel like you love them where they are. And I know a lot of, if you ask any church in America, do you love people where they are? Absolutely. But there's something about hope that really does that. When I'm working on my message or we're playing a weekend, I'm thinking if, if the guy from the gym or my neighbor finally shows up today who, who's lost as a lizard, what's going to be their experience? I, <laughs> Lost as a lizard? Can we do that for a minute? Lizards, all lizards and lost, lizards and cats.
0: Um, Okay, so if he's lost as a lizard and uh, is coming to church, what would he respond to what we're we're talking about?
1: It's it's tough, I mean, like, when I talked about David and adultery, that's a tough topic, but it's a real topic, it's the world we live in, and you still have to do it in such a way that people understand, hey, it's wrong. I don't think anybody would probably argue with that, but at the same time, God still loves you. Does it change how God feels about you?
0: How do you like this car?
1: You know what, um, it's okay, I mean, it's your
0: basic pastor car.
1: Your ba- That's right, it's your basic pastor 500 and some horsepower, you yes. know. Right,
0: right, right. <laughs> My name is Chase, I am one of the campus pastors. If you're new around here, it's so good to be with you. I have the privilege this weekend of kicking off a brand new sermon series that we're calling What, How, and Why, or Why, How, and What. And so we're entering a season here at Hope where we wanna remember why we do what we do and exactly what it is that we're supposed to be doing as a church, and so it's a vision series. It's where we back up, kind of adjust our perspective and look down from 30,000 feet and remember the big and important things. And it's always incredibly helpful to do this every now and again because as humans, we have a huge tendency to just forget, to go on autopilot, to forget why we do what we do and how we're supposed to do it and what we're supposed to be doing. So as you may know, our vision here at Hope is to reach the triangle and change the world. And the way we want to accomplish that is summed up in our mission statement, which is to love people where they are and encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus. And we even unpack that last little statement, and we have five marks or five ways that we actually measure if we are growing in a relationship with Jesus or not. And so these first two weeks, uh, we're going to be diving in and remembering the why as we go through love people where they are this week. And then encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus next week, and then the next five weeks, Mike will be taking us through the how, the five ways that we measure that sort of growth. And now let me say up front, um, this is not the unveiling of a new vision. Uh, So our vision, our mission as a church, and really every church goes back 2,000 years ago where Jesus gave us our very clear marching orders in Matthew 28 where he said go and make disciples, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always. And so every church in reality has the same goal, to make disciples. Uh, But every church has different leaders with different personalities. And every church is in a different context. So a church in Haiti is necessarily going to look different than a church in Raleigh. And every congregation has different uh, giftings and different histories. And so this isn't the unveiling of some sort of man-made plan, this series is really just meant to be a reminder of who we are, if you're a HOPE member or a mission partner as we call them, and an introduction of sorts to those of you who are relatively new around here. So we want to introduce ourselves to you, tell you our backstory, and let you know what we're all about. And it's kind of cool to be able to do this at a church that, it had, that has had 25 years of ministry to look back on. I used to do a vision series every year at the church. Uh, me and some other folks started in the mountains in Asheville. Uh, every single year we would do that. But th- that vision series was more of this is what we hope to be one day. Here at Hope, uh, I have 25 years to look back on and learn from. And we're at a place now where we can pretty confidently say this is who God has made us to be. This is how he has gifted us. This is how we uniquely make disciples in our context. And so this first week, I want <clears throat> to dive into the first part of the why, um, which is incur, uh, love people where they are. So first, I want to show you an example of what loving someone where they are actually looks like. Because you might think that you know Or we could try to guess what that looks like, but as you'll see in a minute, we could never guess or imagine the type of love that we're supposed to love people with. But thankfully, we have 100 beautiful examples of Jesus walking this out for us. So I wanna dive into one of those instances, and then I wanna show you why this is so important. Why on a list of a 100 different things that we could be doing as a church, why we zero in on this one thing, why this is one of the defining characteristics of our church. So I want to look with you at a story that's found in Luke chapter 7, and it's probably a familiar story if you grew up in church, but it is, in my opinion, one of the best examples of what loving someone where they are looks like. So if you have your Bible... Go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 7. It's the third book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. If you don't have your Bible, it'll be up on the side screens. If you have to use your table of contents, no one's going to judge you. I still have to from time to time. And it's found in verses 36. Let me just read this whole story for you, and then we'll slowly unpack it. So Luke chapter 7, verse 36. It says, one of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And so Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. He said, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which one of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him begin to say among themselves, who is this? who even forgives sins. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. It's a beautiful story, let me unpack it for you. So there's a Pharisee named Simon. Now the Pharisees were the religious ruling class, so think theology professor or lawyer or or Bible teacher. And this Pharisee invites Jesus to come and eat at his house, which is very uncommon in the Gospels. We don't see the Pharisees being too nice to Jesus in public. If they want to meet with him, it's usually behind closed doors. They do it in secret. But for some reason, Simon invites him over to eat. We're not sure why. Um, I think it was to test to see if Jesus really was the Messiah. But we do know a few things about Simon. He is not a believer, so he is not a follower of Jesus And we can tell right off the bat because he doesn't exactly roll out the red carpet when Jesus arrives at his house. You see, in those days, there were certain expectations or customs of how a host would treat a guest. So like in our day, we have certain expectations as well in our culture. So um, a guest will usually arrive at our front door, not our back door. Uh, Usually the guest will bring some sort of beverage or food item. They'll pass that off to the host. The host might ask him to take off their shoes or leave it on. And then the first question the host usually asks is, can I get you something to drink, if they're a good host. So um, there were certain expectations and customs like this um, back in those days as well. When a guest would arrive at your house, you would greet them with a kiss on the cheek. Uh, I was telling my daughters this story a while ago, and they were like, that's kind of gross. You have to kiss people on the cheek. And my wife kind of jumped in. She said, no, 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 it's like French kissing. And my daughters know what that is, and I do too. We're like, that's really gross. She's like, no, 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 no. That's how they greet each other in France. They kiss each other on the cheek. We're like, okay, that's much better. But that, that's what they would do. And then you would have them remove their sandals and you'd wash their feet. So they've been walking outside all day. It's muddy. They've been stepping in the stuff that comes out of the south end of a northbound donkey, if you know what I'm talking about. So you take their sandals off, you get their feet clean, and then it was customary to put some olive oil or some good-smelling fragrance on their head. But Simon doesn't do any of this, and we're not told why. Maybe Simon meant to be rude to him. Maybe he just expected his servants to do it, and they forgot. We're not sure. But if you were watching this unfold, it would have been very, very awkward. Now, if you were a Pharisee like Simon, with uh, relatively a lot of money, relatively speaking, uh, you would have a pretty nice house. And your house uh, would have been like everybody else's house. It would have been a square house with a hollowed-out courtyard in the middle. For when it uh, it was too hot, you would eat meals out there and you'd probably even sleep out there during the hot summer months in Jerusalem. Um, And so Simon has set the table in the courtyard. Now, it's not a kitchen table like you and I eat at. This is a low table. If you've ever been to Southeast Asia or the Middle East, you've seen these tables. They're low to the ground. And the way that you would eat is you would lay on your stomach and eat with your right hand. Or more commonly, you would recline. That's why Luke uses that word. You'd recline on your left side, your left elbow, and put your feet behind you. Um, And then you'd eat and drink with your right hand. Um, now, in this house would have been a ton of people. So Simon lives with this whole extended family that was very common back then. So lots of people were coming and going. And then Simon, as a Pharisee, would have been the type of person that all the movers and shakers would want to get to know. Um, so there was probably a crowd at this house that night, especially seeing that Jesus has come to visit. So when Jesus takes his seat and reclines at the table, everyone walking around would have noticed, first off, that his feet were not um, washed. They were sticking out behind them as they made the rounds around the courtyard. That would have stuck out like a sore thumb, so everyone would have noticed this. This is very disrespectful. Well, the meal gets going, and suddenly there appears this woman, and Luke doesn't give her a name. Now, there's similar stories in the other Gospels, but in Luke's Gospel, she doesn't have a name, but taking into account this story and the other stories in the other books of the Bible, I think she's come into contact with Jesus before. So she's either witnessed his miracles or she's heard his teaching, And she's heard that Jesus was gonna be in her town at a dinner party and she thinks, this is my chance. And so she grabs a very, very expensive vial of ointment and maybe she planned to just anoint his head and then to speak with him casually. Maybe she planned on giving it to him as a gift, we don't know. And so she shows up to this religious leader's house with all these religious people and extended family coming and going. And there's a small detail about this woman that makes this awkward dinner even worse. Uh, She's a prostitute. And I think this is safe to assume. She's called a sinner, more than that, a great sinner. And when Simon reacts to her later in the story, he implies that she's a prostitute, and we'll get there in a moment. But imagine this woman, this prostitute, walking into this religious leader's house. It's probably an awful experience. I'm sure the servants tried to stop her. And then the wives there, I'm sure they shot her looks of contempt and shock. And then the husbands The men there, some of whom I'm sure have used her services before, so they turn red in the face, they turn their back, they try to tactfully steer their wives to the other side of the building. And it's this horrible experience for this lady. She is judged and she's hated from the moment that she walks in. And so she eventually comes into view of Jesus and when he comes into view, she is just completely overcome with emotion. She just starts weeping, just sobbing. And she's probably crying because of how awkward she feels as a prostitute around all these religious people. She knows she doesn't belong there. She knows she doesn't deserve to be there in the presence of Jesus. But I think there are also tears of repentance. And She knows she's made a mess of her life. She knows she doesn't have the right to approach Jesus, but this is her only chance. And I think she's heard that Jesus is different. That maybe this rabbi, this teacher, this Jesus will give someone like her a chance. And so at this point, she approaches Jesus and she kneels behind his feet. And she doesn't ask permission to do this. And she's a mess, right? Her eye makeup's running down her face. There's snot coming out of her nose. She's red in the face. She's making those weird noises that you only make when you cry really, really hard. And this is where everything starts to go wrong from her. Have you you seen that scene in The Office? Of course you are. We've all seen The Office like 10 times. But where Kevin makes his famous chili, and then he brings it in the office that Monday, and he spills it, and he tries to get it back in the pot with that folder. So it just goes from bad to worse. That's what this, this scene looks like. This poor woman, she hasn't planned on weeping, she just wanted to give Jesus a present and then talk to him afterwards, but as she's weeping, she notices her tears have hit his feet, and there's something weird. They're leaving these dark trails behind, and she thinks, his feet are dirty. Why are his feet dirty when he's inside? And She thinks, this isn't right. Why aren't his feet washed like everyone else's? And She can't stand the idea of Jesus being disrespected like that, but she doesn't have a bowl of water or a towel to wash them herself, and she thinks, well, they're already wet because of my tears but what can I wipe them off with? And she probably thinks her dress first, but there's, there's tears and snot and stuff up here, and then she's kneeling, so the bottom part's dressed, so she says, oh, I'll just use my hair. So she takes down her hair and begins to wipe the feet of Jesus with that, and when she did that, there would have been an audible gasp in the courtyard. Because when a Jewish girl got married, uh, she would let her hair down on her wedding night, and then she'd keep it up the rest of her life, and she'd only let it down in the presence of her husband. So this was scandalous. Now, she's a prostitute, so she probably doesn't think much of it, but it would be the same in our day as if she would take off the whole dress and start wiping Jesus' feet. But notice, Jesus doesn't stop her. Jesus doesn't say a word. He and everyone else is absolutely silent. And everyone's probably thinking, when is Jesus going to do something about this? When is he going to kick her out? When is he going to stop her? And so she finishes wiping his feet as best as she can, and she probably sits up, and she realizes she just made things worse. There wasn't enough water and her tears to really get it clean, and now there's probably hair stuck to his feet, and, and she feels so bad. And so as a last resort, she just starts kissing his feet, almost as if to say, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm gonna make this right. And she opens up that big vial of ointment and just douses the feet of Jesus with it. And this is powerful stuff. So like a little dabble, do you. So this smell just invades the courtyard. It's like when seventh graders figure out what Axe body spray is. So it's just this atrocious smell. And she's done everything wrong up to this point, just inappropriately, socially unacceptable. And then she just sits up, and she's at a loss of what to do next. And it's been complete silence. And everyone's probably like, what is Jesus going to do about and so about this time, Simon, the Pharisee, has probably had enough. He thinks, this woman's coming to my house. She's ruined my chances of getting to the bottom of this whole Messiah thing. And he has this thought. He doesn't say this out loud, but he thinks, if Jesus really were a prophet, if he really were holy, if he really were righteous, if he really was a pure person, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner, and he would have stopped her or kicked her out a long time ago. And the word that Simon uses in the Greek for touching him is actually an innuendo. It's it's the same word that's used for sex a few times in the New Testament. So he's basically saying he should know what type of woman is groping him. He should be angry. He should be disgusted. And that's probably what the other people in the house were thinking as well. And now finally, Jesus breaks this deafening silence. So the man that Simon doubted was a prophet Can apparently read minds, and Jesus tells this short story. He says, There were two men, Simon. One owed 500 days' wages, the other 50 days' wages. Neither could pay, so their master forgave them um, both. It's a simple story, and then he asks Simon a question. He says, Which one do you think will love the master more? That's a pretty easy answer. The one that's been forgiven more. And that's the right answer. And then Jesus, Luke tells us, Jesus turns to the woman, and everyone's thinking, What in the world is he going to say? This is it. Jesus is going to let this lady have it. Jesus is going to kick this lady out. But he locks eyes with the woman, but he begins to speak to Simon. Don't miss that. Luke puts that in the story for a reason. So he's he's looking at the woman, but he's speaking to Simon. And he says, you didn't, but she did. You didn't, but she did. You didn't, but she did. You didn't wash my feet or anoint my head or give me a kiss, but she's done all of these things. And Jesus is pointing out the irony of the situation. Everyone's offended at the actions of this sinful prostitute when Jesus is saying, she's the only one that's done anything right. It's the religious people who are acting disrespectfully towards me. And in a very powerful and public way, he validates this woman. And he doesn't say a word about her past. He doesn't say a word about her tears or the fact that she's touched him. He didn't say anything about her hair being down. He does the exact opposite of what everyone expected him to do. And he looks her right in the eyes and he affirms her and he defends her and he validates her in front of the whole dinner party. And he's not shaming Simon. You have to see that. He's not looking at Simon. Simon is not the point of this story. He's looking at the woman. He wants Simon to look at the woman. He wants to draw the eyes of the crowd. Luke, Luke wants our eyes on this woman. And then Jesus says this powerful statement. He says, Simon, this, the, the one who is forgiven much loves much. He's saying, Simon, this is what a forgiven person looks like. This is what a daughter of mine looks like. But the person that loves little has obviously been forgiven little. So he's identifying himself with the prostitute instead of the religious people. And then to make sure that this woman understands, to reassure her that it's true, he says, your sins have already been forgiven. It's a perfect tense, have already been. It means it happened in the past with lasting results in the future. He's saying, I accept you right where you are. I know you feel like you messed things up tonight. I know you feel like you messed your whole life up, that maybe, just maybe, you're beyond repair, and tonight it's just one more proof of that, but no, he says, child, daughter, I love you right where you are. And the very last words that this sinful woman hears as she leaves the house of the Pharisee is a shocked crowd just muttering, who in the world is this that can forgive someone like her? And she hears the words of the Messiah, the Son of God, saying, go in peace. the story ends right there. And it's a short little narrative, one of dozens like it, that Luke uses to show us one thing and one thing only. This is what happens when a great sinner comes into the presence of a great Savior. That's what Luke wants us to see. There's no commands here. There's no life application. We're just We're just meant to stare at this scene and take it in and be changed by it. You wanna know what happens when a sinner comes into the presence of God? This is what it looks like. There's no judgment. There's no demands. There's no go clean yourself up and then come back and we can try this over again. There's no expectations. There's none of that. Jesus acts counter to everyone's expectations. There's immediate and full acceptance and love. And it just explodes all of our preconceived ideas about how God treats sinners. That's why the crowd is so shocked because the type of love we see in Jesus is shocking. It's scandalous. It seems too good to be true. It seems too good to be fair, doesn't it? I don't know why this is the case, but there's something inside all of us that wants to put some sort of limits on this love. Like, yeah, I get how you can accept that person. And I get how you can love that person, but not this person, certainly not that person. They're, they're too far in sin. They're too far gone. We want to put conditions on God's love or parameters that people have to meet or live up to before they can be accepted. Our world says you can't just dole out unconditional love. You've got to earn it. You've got, you got, you got to work for it. But what Jesus is showing us in striking detail is that his love is different than our love. It's absolutely unconditional. There's nothing you have to do for it. There's nothing that you have to be in order to be worthy of it. No one is worthy of it. It's a gift that he freely gives out to anyone that is willing to accept it, including a prostitute sitting in a Pharisee's house this night. It's the type of love that kind of makes us uncomfortable, isn't it? But I think if we're honest, we have to admit this is the type of love that all of us have been searching for. And this is the type of love that God wants everyone here on earth to experience, this unconditional, shocking sort of, sort of love. And it's not It's not the powerless sort of love that our world offers where it says there's no such thing as sin. There's no such thing as right and wrong. Everyone's loved because no one's wrong. No, no, no. Jesus doesn't say there's no such thing as sin. There is right and wrong. He says there is sin. This woman is a great sinner. She's deep in sin. It's not the powerless sort of love. It's the powerful sort of love that has the power to free us from our sin. You see, we get this backwards. A lot of times we think that God's love is a reward, for obedience or for being a good person. But look at the order of what Jesus says. It says, he who has been forgiven much will love much, will be transformed. It's only after we experience this sort of love that we receive the power to change and to obey and to become a good person. See, God's ultimate goal for all of us is to be free of sin. That's his ultimate goal, but only a personal experience of his love And acceptance gives us, gives a person the power to do that. And that's what we see in the life of Jesus. Time after time, we see him pursuing the unloved, the down and out. We see radical acceptance. We see unmerited love. And it leaves behind it a wake of transformation and changed lives. Now, let me shift gears just a little bit. See, Jesus is no longer with us. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father, as the Bible says. But but his spirit's still here. So his spirit and his presence are alive and well in his people, in his church. The Bible says we're the hands and feet of Jesus, his presence here on earth. And so I think we can conclude this weekend that when great sinners come into the presence of God's people, he also expects them to experience this sort of grace and this sort of love and this sort of acceptance. So the same reception that this prostitute received as she sat at the feet of Jesus, that is the love and the acceptance that everyone who walks through the doors of any church should receive. And I say should, because sadly, that's not what many of you have experienced in the past. And I hate that. Some of you gave church a shot a few years ago and you you didn't experience that. Instead, you experienced judgment or you experienced shame, or you experienced expectations, or alienation, or you experienced the pressure to walk, or to talk, or to dress in a certain way, to have it all together before you could be accepted. And there are tons of you who are sitting in this room right now have been hurt by the church instead of loved by the church. And I'm willing to bet that's something that, that you remember, that you hold on to, and the reason you still remember it is because it seems so unnatural. I think church hurt is often some of the most painful hurt because it just shouldn't be. It's like an oxymoron. Uh, John hints at this in uh, his book, 1 John, where he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Beloved, if God so loved us by sending his son to die on a cross, then we also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates or shames or judges his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. John's saying, if you're a son and a daughter of God, there has to be a family resemblance with the father. And that's the kind of church that we want to be here at Hope. So we want to do everything that we can to love people exactly where they are. And we don't want to put any hurdles or any hoops that they have to jump through. We don't want to lay any expectations on them because that's not how Jesus loved us. And that's the way that we want to love them. So when great sinners come through the doors of this church or through, your, through the doors of your houses or your workplaces in the, in the presence of the people of God, we want them to experience a great savior. Not shame, not judgment, not expectations. Honestly, not even a great church. Not even a list of great ministries. We want them to experience a great and a glorious savior. So when people walk through the doors of this church, we want them to say, if that's how they, the family of God treats me, I have got to meet their father. And anything less than that, we believe, is to be disobedient and unfaithful to the great mission that God has called us to as a church. So hear me say this weekend, no matter what your history is, no matter what your baggage is, no matter what your sexuality is, no matter what your doubts are, no matter what your beliefs about Jesus or the Bible or Christianity is, no one is too far from the reach of this type of love. Now, some of you have been around church a while are getting a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> Jesus' love is like that. It makes us uncomfortable. Some of you don't like the words that I just used. We're an orthodox evangelical church, so you know where we stand on certain issues. But our job is to introduce people to the love of God and let him take it from there. Some of you are thinking, well, this is dangerous territory, though, Chase. People will think they can do anything and still be accepted and loved by God. I have some really good news for you. They can. That's what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Like, but Chase, this is dangerous. Won't they use it as an excuse to sin? And that's my favorite, que- that's my favorite question, because when I hear it, I know that I'm getting the gospel right, because Paul got this question all the time in the New Testament. It seems dangerous only if you radically underestimate the power of this type of love. When people experience this love, really experience it, they don't say, man, I like to commit sin, Jesus likes to forgive it, we're gonna get along just great, right? That's, that's not what they say. There's this revelation that happens inside of them where they say, this is how much Jesus loves me. This is what God was willing to do for me and give to me. Alcohol never loved me like that. Money never loved me like that. Pornography and all these things, they never give anything to me. They take and they take and they leave me empty. This is what I've been searching for. That's what happens. You see that? So we are unapologetic that our desire and our prayer and our desperate longing is to love anyone that walks into these doors the same way that Jesus loved this woman. And that's not an easy task. We get that. Um, Jesus got a lot of pushback for this type of love. Uh, He was called a drunkard and a glutton for hanging out with sinners. He was maligned as a friend of sinners, as if that was a bad thing, especially from religious people. And so we know that if we want to be a church like that, loves like this, we're gonna get some pushback as well. And honestly, there have been a few dozen times where I've gotten pushback from some well-meaning Christians in this church and outside this church. I won't tell you everything they say, but it usually is, has the gist of, you know, I've heard it. Hope, a lot of people that go there don't even believe in Jesus. To which I respond, praise God. <laughs> That's the type of church I wanna to go to. But you have to understand, um, this is not something that we're willing to budge on. Because if we budge on this, if we put some rules up, or if we say, you can struggle with this sin, but not this sin, or you can be this far away from God, or, or no further, um, then we've missed the whole thing. Right? We've gotten the gospel wrong, and that's the one thing that we have to get right as a church. And so, that's our desire. And that's not just a desire, it's a conviction that God has planted deep in the hearts of our leaders in our past. And this conviction of loving people where they are is the theme that you're gonna see show up over and over and over again as you listen to the stories about the past 25 years of ministry here at Hope. Um, You've probably heard this story before. Mike told it. Um, Our first front desk lady, um, she was on a video during our 25th anniversary celebration. The first person that answered the phones for the church, she was a former adult dancer. And not like six months before she applied, she was an adult dancer, like the night before. And so she walks into the interview, and we knew that she needed money because her family went here, and she was a single mom. She needed to support her daughter. And so she comes into the interview, not exactly sober. It's a crazy story if you hear it. And uh, Mike listens to her, and he just hires her on the spot. Uh, where most churches would be like, that is crazy. Mike was like, well, so is the love of Jesus. So let's figure, let's see what happens. So he hires her on the spot, and um, sure enough, a few months later, Jesus radically transforms this woman's life. And I have the privilege of working beside this lady every single day, even last week. And so she is one of the most passionate, mature, inspiring people that i have ever had the honor uh, to call a friend. And I just can't imagine it, <clears throat> if we put up some unneeded hurdles to her meeting Jesus. Um, our first First Impressions director, she was Buddhist. And uh, she lived in the neighborhood with the Nielsens, a couple that moved out here with Mike and Laura to start this church. And the Nielsens were loving on her sons, taking them to play laser tag and taking them to youth group. And she thought, well, I'm a Buddhist. My kids are going to a Christian church. I should probably go make sure it's not a cult. So uh, she shows up and sits in the back row and, um, and her questions were patiently answered. And uh, a few months later, she uh, committed her life to her Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in Mike's office. And there's story after story after story like that. I talked to a guy um, at a Men's Connect Night at the Apex campus just a few weeks ago, and I asked him about his stories. like, you sure you wanna hear it? It's crazy. I said, yeah. He's like, man, I used to be a pagan. I used to hate Christians. I used to hate Christianity. I used to try to fight with Christians all I could. My wife was an atheist, and one night, for some reason, she says, you know, I've heard about Hope, that church, Hope, let's go there. So, an atheist wife brings her pagan husband to Hope because she hears that they'll be welcomed here, and he goes through some really, really hard events, uh, but he takes some of the classes that I taught a few years ago and his, his questions are answered. And uh, now he's studying to be a full-time licensed Christian counselor because God changed his life. And there's, there's tons of stories like that. I didn't have it all together when I came to Hope here. Now, I wasn't a Buddhist. I wasn't, a, I wasn't an adult dancer, <laughs> certainly not. <laughs> if you saw my dance rooms, you know, no, no, no. The Lord saved the world from that, but I... <laughs> Bad I I struggled with uh, with different things. Still sinful things, still equally as bad, but this church loved me and poured into me and I'm a different person because of it. So you have to see, this is our heartbeat. This is our DNA. This is who we have been, this is who we are, and by God's grace, this is who we will continue to be in the coming years. And everything that we do here as a church is gonna be run through this test, this filter. Does it help us love people where they're at? Does this help us love people well? And if it doesn't, we're not gonna do it because it's too important. If this story is really what happens when great sinners come to the, the presence of a great Savior, that's what we want hope to be as well. So I'm gonna close here um, just with two quick questions. First, um, if you have experienced this type of love, if you're a Christ follower, if you're a mission partner, I wanna ask you, um, who in your life right now is far from God, but close to you? Who in your life right now is far from God, but happens to be close to you, connected to you? And I wanna tell you this weekend, that is no accident. God has placed his spirit inside you. He's placed you in proximity of that person for a reason. So I want everyone here to just think of one person, and I wanna ask you, how can you love them well? Actually, go go beyond that. How can you shock them with the radical love and acceptance of Jesus Christ? And I want you to be intentional with just one act of love this week. Just be a little, a little taste, a little preview of the amazing love of God to them. And then come back next week as we talk about how we can help them take steps towards Jesus. And then lastly, I want to ask everyone here, do you know this love? Have you experienced this type of love? As I said earlier, hopefully there's dozens of people at all of our campuses this weekend that have not yet experienced it. Maybe you've read about it, maybe you've heard about it, maybe you've um, seen other people experience, but have you personally experienced this love of Jesus? And if you're not sure, you probably haven't because you would know, your life would be changed. I wanna tell you this weekend, this is the love that you've been searching for. And there's really good news. The best news in the world is that you can experience this love, this grace, this mercy, and the transformation that results from it, you can experience it right here, right now, exactly where you are, right here in this moment, because Jesus has done everything needed for the Father to freely and fully accept you. He lived the life that you couldn't live, that maybe you're trying to live right now. He died the death that you should have died. It is finished Your debts have been paid. And you don't have to go clean yourself up. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to strive to earn it, you can't. All you have to do is open your hands and receive it and believe it and watch as God transforms you from the inside out. So if that's you this morning, I wanna be a little old school. Maybe it'll be uncomfortable, I don't care, that's fine. Uh, But I wanna lead you in a prayer this morning. So let's bow our heads, let's close our eyes. There's nothing special about this prayer. These aren't magic words, but hopefully they can put to words maybe what you're feeling in this moment. And so if that's you this morning, you haven't experienced this type of love, just say something like this. Just say, Father, this weekend I learned that I can apparently call you Father, even though I don't deserve to. And so I come to you as as a sinner, as someone who's messed up. My life's not what I want it to be. I'm not who I wanna be and I just confess that I need help. So Father, would you forgive me? And the Bible says that you will because of Jesus. So I accept that forgiveness, Father, help me change. Send your spirit into my my heart. Transform me from the inside out as I seek to leave behind my sin and walk towards you. Thank you for your great grace. Keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. If you prayed that prayer, Uh, you are a new brother and sister in Christ. The angels are rejoicing right now. And I would highly encourage you to tell someone about that this morning. Maybe it's the person sitting next to you, maybe it's your wife or husband, Uh, maybe it's a staff member here, but share that news, because we would love to celebrate with you and walk beside you. Father, for everyone else in this room right now, I was praying this morning and just this thought came up that maybe there's people here who have experienced that love in the past they forgot what your love's really like, and they forgot how great your forgiveness really is, and they're holding on to dozens of sins, and for some reason, they just won't let you forgive them. They they wanna work them off, they wanna earn it, they wanna strive, and there's no peace. So Spirit, I pray that you would just get to the heart of that, that you would bring those dark things into the light, that everyone in this room this morning would remember how powerful how incredible your forgiveness is. God, remind us. And we'll worship you because of it. It's in your beautiful name we pray, Jesus, amen.